0: Marketing success comes from identifying the right opportunities. And sponsoring the UpNext in Commerce podcast might just be the best opportunity you'll hear about today. With tens of thousands of listeners, expert creative, production, and strategic promotion teams at the helm, not to mention millions of impressions at the ready, this is a growth opportunity you should not ignore. Email me at stephanie@mission.org at to see how your business can benefit from partnering with the UpNext in Commerce team
1: just getting very specific about areas in the funnel to improve and how to adjust the trial experience at certain times and experiencing and showing customers different things at different times, that had like a crazy amount of upside for us. Sometimes an opportunity comes along that's too good to pass up. For Matt Hewlett, that happened when a friend approached him about a job at Rosetta Stone. The famous language learning company was stuck in the analog world and they wanted Matt to be the guy to bring them into the digital future. It was no small feat, but Rosetta Stone has made progress on the digital transformation and e-commerce journey, including introducing a new subscription model and overhauling its tech stack and app. On this episode of Up Next in Commerce, Matt discusses the challenges of transforming a world-famous brand, including how he chose a free trial subscription model over going freemium, what it was like to achieve buy-in from investors, and the future of e-commerce and why he thinks social selling still hasn't reached its full potential. Enjoy this episode.
0: Up Next in Commerce is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud. Respond quickly to changing customer needs with flexible e-commerce, connected to marketing, sales, and service. Deliver intelligent commerce experiences your customers can trust across every channel. Together, we're ready for what's next in commerce. Learn more at salesforce.com slash commerce. Welcome back to Up Next in Commerce. This is Stephanie Postles, co-founder of mission.org and your host, Today, we're going on a digital transformation journey. Matt, how's it going?
1: Oh, really good. You know, a little cooped up here like we all are, but I'm, I'm hanging in there. How are you doing?
0: Doing well. Yeah, same hot. Very hot. It's 92 here and the places in uh, Silicon Valley usually don't have air conditioning. So just a little sweaty in the studio. <laughs> so I must admit, I have not checked in on Rosetta Stone in a while. And when I started browsing through your guys' website, I was like, whoa. You all have come a long way from CD-ROMs and everything that I was used to when I was growing up and uh, thought of Rosetta Stone. So I would love to hear a little bit about what brought you to Rosetta Stone and your um, background before you joined.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. Just before I dive in, it's rare to join a company where everyone knows your brand and your product. Like just about everyone in the United States knows Rosetta Stone. Yep. And so, you know, it's it's actually it's it's an interesting story because there's not many ed tech companies that are public companies. You could count them on your hand. Mm -hmm. And the company has been a a public company for over 10 years. It's been around for 27 years. Wow. It's really interesting uh, backstory on how the company was founded. And so some of that came into play with what got me attracted to the business. So a friend of mine who's a recruiter um, talked to me about this opportunity. And I typically do restarts you know, pivots, mm-hmm. as they are affectionately called, or startups. And even the startups that I join are typically pivots. So there's kind of this pivot transformation story that typically is a draw for me for whatever weird reason why I get attracted to these things. And when he said, oh, it's Rosetta Stone. I was like, oh, the CD-ROM company, <laughs> the yellow box. Yep. I was like, yeah, but they're trying to be digital. I'm like, they're not digital yet, you know? And so, um, the draw for me was typically I take on jobs and assignments that are very difficult where I have to either, you know, completely change the strategy or get new financing on a new idea. There's generally something really, really wrong. And Rosetta Stone was so intriguing to me at, on the surface for the intellectual reasons why, you know, the brand, the product, people love it. It's not one of those iconic brands that people are afraid of. Like, it's not like saying, Matt, do you want to restart MySpace? You know, it's like... <laughs> And I was like, oh my gosh! is Rosetta Stone, of course. So that's
0: your next project, then, MySpace. <laughs>
2: bring it yes, back. Yeah,
1: <laughs> making it great again. <laughs> Too soon. Um, but uh, what personally drew me—that's kind of the intellectual business level. What personally drew me into the company was and is the fact that um, I'm dyslexic, and a third of the revenue for Rosetta Stone is actually one of the fastest growing. We sell software into K-12 schools, primarily in the United States, that help kids learn how to read, better learn how to read, which um, is a problem I've seen my own youngest son um, struggle with his dyslexia as well. And so on a personal level, it's very emotional. And when you can kind of tie that emotional tie to a company to its mission and vision, it, it's, it's really intriguing. So it's been, a, it's been a, one of the best career decisions I've ever made.
0: Yeah, that's great. Were there any universal truths that you discovered as you were kind of pivoting from different companies and trying out different roles and turning them around? Was there anything like, yeah, universal truths that you saw while doing that?
1: Oh, it's a great question. Um, yeah, a couple of things. One is, it's so crazy to me when I step into a company how basically from week one, maybe day one, no one really understands how the business works, like truly understands it. Like the like the key insight, like what makes the business special, mm-hmm. what what can you do to apply capital or a time or attention to improve your strategy or your outcomes? It's just so it's so weird when you go into a business that's operating, and maybe these are the only businesses I look at where it's not quite tight.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: The insight around the the strategy and what makes the kind of the economic engine run. Um, I think that's the biggest one that, that I see off the top of my head.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I can definitely see a lot of companies struggling that, especially as they grow bigger and they have many business units and everyone's kind of chasing a different, you know, path. I can see people losing sight of what's important and what's actually, you know, driving this business like you're talking about and making it profitable or, you know, maybe it's not, but it's, you know, like the the loss leader or something that we still need. So, yeah, that that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. So, when you joined Rosetta Stone, it hadn't been digital, I mean, only a few years, right? I think it stopped Maybe it didn't stop doing CDs, but it went online, wasn't it, in 2013?
1: Yeah. And it, I would say it's kind of, it was like half digital. What that means is we're selling one of the most expensive products in the app store mm-hmm. time. And we didn't really have, you know, the concept of like really effective sales funnels, um, a well thought out pricing and packaging strategy based on, you know, the type of customers that we we're going after. We didn't have a lot of mobile native features and capabilities. So I would say it was kind of a port of the Kind of the CD product in a mobile environment. And that was kind of the approach. Also, the approach was really not to focus on the consumer business. So not only did we make this business model uh, digital transformation move, but also when I came into the business, the big focus was for the language side of the business was to focus on enterprise customers.
2: Mm-hmm. I thought that was
1: actually the wrong move because Enterprise is difficult, it's a smaller market, yet consumers where everyone knows Rosetta Stone, everyone likes the product, they actually remember the CD products in many cases and want to use them again, but they want to use them on your on your phone. So I thought, well, heck, if everyone knows who I am from a brand awareness perspective, I'll have an easier time deploying less capital against the consumer space. Mm-hmm. An enterprise space. So that, that the, there was not only just a business model shift, but also a strategy shift.
0: Got it. Did you end up sticking with that business model shift to focus on enterprises, or did you kind of make it a mix of 50-50?
1: Oh, good question. So uh, it, it is about 50-50 today, although consumers now growing fast. I mean, we're a public company, so I can only speak to our public company numbers. But in Q4 of last year, we grew the consumer business about 20% year over year. And this is from a business that was growing at single digit. Mm -hmm. And then um, our last reporting earnings quarter, we grew the consumer business around 40% year over year. And the enterprise business has struggled more primarily because of the C-19 impacts this year, because obviously we're we're in a never before seen macroeconomic headwind, Mm -hmm. but uh, generally it's the right decision to make. And I, and I view the enterprise business as more of an extension of what we want to do for all adult learners versus creating it as a, separate entity. That's a long way to answer say. consumer turned out to be the right move. It was not clear when I joined the company that even joining Rosetta Stone was a smart move. I had a lot of folks that I know, acquaintances more so than friends, say, you know, good luck. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of care on this company. And I just think it's just a really exciting problem. And it's a huge... Sorry to, to keep going because I've had maybe 80 cups of coffee today. I'm from Seattle. No,
0: keep it up. But, you
1: know, it's like, it's like, it's like, you know, the two big verticals that are the most expensive that increase their, their prices to consumers over the last 50 years are healthcare and education, and they have the lowest penetration of digital. And I'm like, well, those are hard problems to solve. Yeah. Why wouldn't you want to be involved? So anyways, I think it's really fun.
0: Yeah, no, that's fascinating. So when you came in, what were expectations for your role? Like, what did people want you to do? Did you have a 90-day plan? How did that look?
1: If anyone thinks these are scripted questions, these are not scripted questions. These are very good questions. Uh, so, during the interview process, I don't, and I'm sure you've had this experience before. You know, when you meet with somebody in a company, you're like, I'm going to do whatever it takes to get this job. Yep. And I had one of those, those experiences uh, with Rosetta Stone. And also, I knew I wanted this job. And so, I, I came into maybe the first or second interview with a 90-day plan before I even started. This is the first first or second interview. Mm-hmm. And the nanny day plan did change slightly because then I knew a little something, but I had done enough of these transformation projects, these pivots where I knew there's these basic building blocks in a format. I have a kind of a toolbox of things that I do that, that really didn't change. You know, how, the, the inevitable strategy didn't know before I started. I didn't know the team members, were they the right fit or not? I didn't know any of that, but the basic building blocks I definitely put together.
0: Got it. So what was on your roadmap? Did you have to think about how to, you know, replatform to support, you know, your commerce journey and, you know, shifting into enterprise and then consumer, like what was on that um, plan that you laid out?
1: Yeah. um, And I kind of learned some of this years ago when I was, I sometimes I think my best work, I can't speak for you or anybody else, but my best work is when I'm completely ignorant Mm-hmm. of the challenges in front of me. And so when I was younger, I worked for, well, actually we sold our company to Macromedia and they had a division called Shockwave. And Macromedia at that point was not bought by Adobe. And this is Web 1.0 Bubble. So I'm dating myself, which is not not legal in Washington state. Oh gosh. And these jokes are all- You're gonna get no us in crime. trouble. <laughs> I know. Um, and so uh, we- we stepped back, went through that experience, and I learned a lot from the macro Macromedia Adobe kind of uh, m and folks about how to approach a problem. And that, plus some other work experience over time, really got me to the point of, of thinking through things from, I call it the insight, the math, and the heart. And no one framed it that way to, to me, but that's kind of how I framed it. And so when I think about the insight, I think about the addressable market, the position that we are in the marketplace. So suppliers, demand, competitors. Then I think about, you know, what value are we driving to consumers? What value are you driving to your suppliers um, if you have them? And then what are the decisions you're going to make based on the strategy that you're laying out for the best outcome? So do you want to grow market share? Do you want to grow revenue share? Do you not have enough capital? Do you you actually need to raise capital and and buy companies in order to get you know size and scale? That's the outcome. Mm -hmm. So it's it's kind of a process that I've I've done over time. And once you figure all that out, and it it can it takes a while, maybe ninety days, maybe a little bit more. Then then it's really like how do you put a process together? And dashboard's a little trite, but how do you actually run the business so you understand what things are working, the unit economics, what key levers of the business are you looking at, and then figure out an organization to support that, and then you find the right team. And, and it sounds kind of exhaustive in terms of an answer, but I think too many people come in situations and they say, okay, I started this job, I got to restart it, what's my team look like? And it's always, I think, the tail wagging the proverbial pivot dog.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I typically, you can find startup people that are good at startups, and sometimes you find startup people that are good at later stage. You can find every dynamic possible, but until you do the work on, I need this type of person for this type of growth stage, it's the right person at the right time. If you don't do the work up front, then you end up having a team that isn't the right team for the outcome that you want.
0: Yep. Yeah, I've heard, um, I forget who said that startup advice where a lot of startups, especially around here, are looking to hire that VIP level person you have to pay a bunch of money to. And someone was making the point of like, well, will they help you right now where you're at? And it's okay to kind of grow out of people, but it's not okay to, you know, hire someone who's way above that actually can't get their hands dirty and do the work of what needs to be done right now.
1: That's right. You know, there's lots of people have different approaches. I actually like to be pretty data-driven in terms of how I think about people. So I use like um, employee satisfaction studies and I use, you know, personality profile tests. And obviously you're not trying to like uh, I, I, hopefully no one's like applying an AI filter and looking at my reactions on this live video, but like <laughs> you can go overboard with data, but I do feel like you need to get the right, the right alchemy down for your team. Yep. You know, I've made mistakes where you, you have that senior person that doesn't want to get their hands dirty when you're like, look, I'm in build mode, I'm painting the fence and I'm the CEO and I'm painting the fence. And then I'm talking to the neighbors and driving the Uber, you know, like, mm-hmm it's 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 the alchemy of that it is 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 hard to do, but that's a long way to answer to say there's there's a process, and I think it's figuring out what's special about your company, how do you improve it? How do you run it? How do the inputs come become the outputs, and then what team is is required for that?
0: Got it. yeah, very cool. So with the company having to shift as they did to you know go online and create mobile experiences, what kind of challenges did you see come up when you guys were going through that shift?
1: Yeah, so there's multiple. So I always think about kind of the four constituents in most businesses. It's you know it's investors, it's customers, it's your internal employees, and society. Not in that order. Mm-hmm. And the order depends on lots of different things. And so when I kind of check down all those boxes, I think the big one. The first one I, I pick is investors because you're having to explain, you know, a model where the CDs purchased up front, it's very expensive, versus you don't get all the revenue up front, you amortize that revenue and recognize it over, you know, 1224 or whatever in terms of the, the, the span of the subscription. So it's a change in terms of how you're reporting revenue, explaining that in a consistent way, explaining the new metrics of subscription is challenge one. I think from an investor perspective, explaining um, why we have a language business, the Lexia business that I mentioned that focuses on uh, literacy is a 20 to 25% growth business. It's growing pretty nicely and language was declining. So then explaining to investors, you know, why do you still have this business and why are you changing the direction from enterprise to consumer? Mm -hmm. I think for employees, you know, I always like to think through, the employee piece, so you get the employee piece, right. You can do anything. And so getting the employees uh, reason to believe I was the first president to actually run the, the language business. It, it, it had multiple owners of the PL and I was the first person probably since the, the CEO, we had one CEO that, that started Rosetta stone and took it public 10 plus years ago. I was the first single leader in a while. So creating a, a reason to believe, you know, a, a compelling vision, mission, and culture, Um, And then when I think through kind of the customer piece, it wasn't as hard, to be honest, because there was so much brand equity that was good brand equity um, that doing little little bit of things in a way that was kind of planful and data driven actually generated a lot of of great outpouring of support. So the customer customer side of, of what we were doing wasn't as difficult as I would have thought. And we also had an enterprise business that had already integrated things like digital tutoring with the software and demanding fortune 500 companies. So there was some DNA in the company where we knew, boy, you know, you kind of earn every interaction with every interaction. So that, that was that, that piece. And then, you know, later I started building more hooks into society as part of, of that. And so I kind of view it as a, as a a self-fulfilling positive effect of you know you take care of your employees they take care of your customers the investors get great outcomes and society benefits and you keep kind of turning this crank and and you start getting much more reflective about it and it it does have it does pay off it takes i think in general i think people brag about how fast they can turn around companies i don't know why people brag about that i don't know my experience is two years Mm -hmm. and taking a business from like bad to like growing, at least believing in it itself is very hard. And so I look at those four factors and I think the society piece is one that's super important that a lot of companies pay lip service to. And there's a lot of discussion, especially in Silicon Valley about some large companies that, that are, that are controversial there. But I'll give you for instance, why if you can tie together the vision, mission, culture, values to society, how that's self-reinforcing, we had a, Obviously, a horrible global pandemic that we're still pulling ourselves out of, and everyone's kind of living through this experience at the same time. And we we basically took just like two days to decide that we're going to give away our software for free for three months for students. And we run a current business and, you know, selling software to enterprises and adults. And we said, you know what, Um, we know that. Parents are actually going through hell because there's kind of a make-your own adventure yes. right now in homeschooling. Yep. You know, and I'm living <laughs> through it, and and I can feel it myself. Mm-hmm. And we were like, oh my god, this is so stressful, and the anxiety I, I heard from our own employees about it was overwhelming. And I'm asking them to work harder, and so we said, you know what, we're going to give away a three three month subscription, and we're going to just do it, and you just have to the parents have to put their email address in in the school, and that's it. That's awesome. And, and, you know, we're not a free, we, we're a paid subscription product. We're not, there are other competitors that have a freemium model. And as you know, you know, changing models or mixed models generally don't have a long history of working. And we said, you know what, we're just going to do it. And so the team decided to do it. I just said, yeah, let's do something. They said, here's exactly what we're going to do. And it was live. And then the amount of positive benefits, we got that from PR impressions. Um, It actually helped our adult business too adult language learning business. So that's just one quick example when those things all start working together and it's transparent, it's engaged, and it's consistent, it's it becomes kind of operating leverage as well. So yeah, it's fun to see all that work.
0: Yeah, that's great. It's definitely a good reminder of do good things and good things will come back to you. Did you have any struggles with maybe like surges and people logging in and trying to get on the platform that maybe you hadn't experienced in the past because it was maybe a bit more predictable since it wasn't you know free?
1: that's a really good question. Not on a system a systems basis, but certainly from a support basis, um, because we had a lot of we outsourced most of our customer support and we debated for a while whether we would we were going to continue phone support. We still do, and I still debate that one. but yeah, um, a lot of our service providers were in our, you know, in outside the United States and they all of a sudden had to work from home and then some facilities shut down and so we we're constantly playing whack-a-mole um, with our support organizations. Um, and then also I would say our, our frontline heroes were our tutors and we, we employ a lot of highly educated tutors that have degrees in language learning and they all work from home primarily their part-time employees, you know, they turned out to be like our heroes because they took some support calls in addition to one-on-one digital tutoring. Um, And so there was unique ways in which we had to adapt with the demand, but I I would say more on the demand side regarding the, um, the support elements. And we definitely saw a surge due to the work from home trend as well, but that didn't impact kind of service levels in general with the software.
0: Okay, cool. Yeah, I could see it being a bit tricky to develop and maintain a platform that has so many different layers to the business. I'm thinking about, you know, the enterprises who are going on there and buying seats for employees. And then I'm thinking about the schools going on there for students. And then the individual consumer like me, who's maybe like, hey, I'm going to Italy and I want to learn Italian. I don't know. But like, it seems like it would be pretty tricky creating a platform that does all of that. How do you think about creating that so everyone gets a good experience and also being able to monitor and measure it in a successful way?
1: I've never seen the complexity of Rosetta Stone before at this smallest scale. Now, what I mean by that is we have three businesses, and you know we're a small cap public company, so that's that's unusual. Um, and the business was run on the language side. Well, let me step back. So the literacy business is a business that was acquired seven eight years ago, and that's a thirty year old company that uh, was acquired. It's called Lexia, yep. and it works as a distinct operating unit from my business and is run by an awesome gentleman. And I use that word loosely. And if he's listening, sorry, Nick, he's a great guy. Um, and so passionate and his team is so good and it's, it's, I've never seen before a product that's built with like academic research combined with awesome data product engineering that gets results. It just, I've never seen anything like it. And they had the time to build this product over these many years, it was always digital first. Mm-hmm. And so they're run separately. My language business was run on two different tech stacks. Actually, it was like five. And when I started, I was like, well, wait a minute, why is this product that looks the same running off this underlying architecture? Why don't we move everything to React? You know, and as I kind of went through this morass of tech stacks, it, it was a lot of MA that generate a lot of complexity and a lot of tech debt. And so I would say majority of our Innovation was not innovation. It was just keeping these old tech stacks up. So from an R&D perspective, in addition to all the other complexities we just talked about in this interview, I was trying to grow the consumer business, trying to change the business model, swapping out new team members for more, more growth orientation, and doing a huge tech migration. And the complexity around that is mind-boggling. We finished that late last year, like deflashing, like old, weird services, moving to a services architecture, all that stuff we end up doing. And inevitably, the goal is to have one learner experience, mm-hmm. just like you know, you use Google Google Mail for your enterprise, your personal. You know, There are some admin privileges and other things that are associated in the back end. But in general, the product kind of looks and feels the same. And that's the inevitable goal, which we're very close to execute on.
0: Got it. Were there any um, pitfalls that you experienced when going through all those different pieces to the business or anything where you're like, when we implemented this, or we moved to this type of tech stack, like this is when we saw a lot of improvements with conversions or um, anything around the consumer or enterprise business.
1: Yeah. You know, just on on conversions. Yeah. One thing on that is, is interesting is the amount of improvement we saw just with like putting different team members with specific goals. And this is going to sound kind of crazy because everyone's going to like, yeah, he's talking about agile you know, just getting very specific about areas in the funnel to improve and how to adjust the trial experience at certain times and experiencing and showing customers different things at different times. That had like a crazy amount of upside for us. Mm -hmm. And I would say less architecturally did we see an improvement other than we had just less stuff that wasn't moving the innovation forward. But just these small things had big impacts and, you know, get, and i I must say, like, if any one of my team members is listening to this, they'd say you haven't solved all of that yet is it's very difficult to take uh, a business that is kind of so complex. And then all of a sudden kind of say, look, we're going to reduce all the complexity and then we're going to start innovating again. I think there's still a challenge of like faster, smaller teams. We use a safe framework, which is kind of scrum. Like I don't think we figured all of that out yet, Mm -hmm. but it's way different than, than kind of when I came in, it felt very waterfally to me. Like we're going to issue a press release what this release is going to look like in one year. And we're going to work back from that. I'm like, yeah, that's very Amazon. Yeah. Yep. You know, I'm like, well, how do you even know if this is the right thing? If you don't have any customer insight, you know, so there was, there's a whole evolution of trying things, validating them, making sure that you're deploying enough capital against it, make sure it gets a fair shake but not too much where you're, you're, you're in over your head. And, you know, we've had some public, public, um, you know, black eyes on some of our tests and I, I don't care, mm-hmm. you know, um, uh, we, we were trying some things internationally with tutoring, didn't work out. didn't have the capital honestly to support some of it. And I, I kind of feel like those are, those are good experiences to understand, um, you know, whether you're going to invest more in something or not. And so I think the fact that we can start doing those things now because we simplified the platform or, or possible. Uh, yeah, I think it's harder to say no to things than yes to things. And um, some of that discipline is, is easier when you're a startup because you just don't have people to outsource to.
0: Yep, there's always an excuse. Nope, no one else can help us with that. Can't do it.
1: Yeah, and like, like there's never like, you know, like I'm a product manager by training. And I've used every product manager tool under the sun. And now I've kind of just resu- resulted in like using Google sheets again. And, yeah. you know, when I'm trying to triage like epics and themes and stories, and I still like to you know play around with, with those types of planning elements. I just always look at all these people and these points available. And I'm like, you guys have no idea the luxury we have. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'm sure they like hearing that.
1: <laughs> yeah, there's nothing more pure than a startup. And it's like, you know, five people, five engineers and like a product manager that codes and, you know, the CEOs, you know, doing UI, UX. And it's just, it's fun. Yeah,
0: Yeah, that, that's really fun. So you mentioned earlier um, the free trial, which I actually went on Rosetta's website. And I ended up going through the entire uh, trial of learning Spanish. How did you all think about yeah creating that free trial and actually convincing people to do it? Because a lot of times I think I would see something like that and I'd be like, oh, that's too much time. And, you know, I don't want to start that process right now. And I eagerly jumped in and started doing the lesson plan because it was engaging and fun. And it kind of felt like the real world with, you know, the person walking around and you're stopping and talking to them. How did you think about creating that? So it actually converted users into paying customers?
1: No thanks thanks for saying that. Yeah, you know, I think we have a long ways to go. I think, you know, in terms of like what we could be doing, you know, we're just I, I just feel like we're sprinting to the start line because of the late start. But um I think the 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 core the core piece is for most companies when they think about like what business do you want to be in, you know, a lot of people default to like whatever their venture capitalists said they should do from their other companies they manage or mm-hmm whether they read on TechCrunch or whatever, or listen to on this program, is you know you have. I think you have to be very specific once you've figured out like the approach to the the product that you're going after. Like, are you going to be freemium? Are you going to be paid trial, or, or are you going to be, um, for lack of a better term, I call it forced trial or upfront trial? And there's there's elements of 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 this that change. There's kind of nuances because that's a more of a nuanced discussion is. You know, the freemium players in the language space, for instance, would be Duolingo. You know, how do you get the most amount of MAUs, monthly active users, mm-hmm. and get enough of them to convert? Or, you know, the Spotify example. And you're using basically you know, cap CapEx as CAC. Mm-hmm. You know, you're using your R&D to drive user- users and usage. And that's kind of, you know, the Slack-like. Slack slightly different, obviously. Um, then the pay trial is, well, I have enough of something that's good that I want a lot of people to use it, but I want the conversion to be pretty good. And so um, the the first one with freemium, you have to say, okay, it's going to be so fun and compelling and I'm going to actually invest in growth that isn't there yet because I think I have scale Mm -hmm. effects. I can crowd out everyone else. The the second one is I actually have a pretty good product. Um, I need enough people to use it and then feel like I use it enough to want to use more of it. And that's what I decided to do, and I'll, I'll explain why. And then on the upfront paid thing is it's typical like for low ACV, you know, annual contract value, SaaS companies, you'd see, just, just call us and we'll walk you through it with one of my sales reps. Yeah. And we'll, we'll, we'll you know do a guided tour through the demo or whatever. The decision why we did the second one was people knew enough about what the Rosetta Stone brand was like that we knew people would want to try it. And that for people that remember what it was like, they definitely would want to use it again. And we felt like the pinch was more compelling if we gave everyone a little taste of that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: We could have said, please pay up front and we're, we're the gold standard and giddy up. Um, but we felt like we needed to earn our stripes a little bit and to prove to people that we we're, weren't just like a port of a CD product. And so that's, that's why we decided to do that. And we played along Different roads before. We've never done full premium. Premium, and I would argue, at this point in the market, we would not be better served to do that because I think Duolingo has done a really good job of growing their monthly active users and have built some some advantages there. And we're not trying to play that game. I'm trying to play the game of being a really good, effective language learning product, and I'm trying to set the tone in the trial experience that when you're using the product, it's not going to be like a game. It's, it's not going to be like Clash of Clans. I guess Clash of Clans is a bad example. Or Jewel. Yeah. Or like, you know, Candy Crush, I guess is what I was thinking of. You know, you know every day I collect coins and I'm collecting coins to benefit my gameplay. It's kind of how I think about Duolingo a little bit. And, it's, and I think they're, they're masterful what they do. But I, don't, I think they're designed to do something different than what I'm trying to do. And if you're serious about learning a language and you stick to what I'm doing and you do a couple tutor sessions that we offer, you're going to get there. Yep. and so so that's so the business model and the, what we're trying to do in terms of posture, not market share but revenue share, really drove kind of the philosophy on the, the trial experience.
0: Yeah, it definitely uh, it felt more serious, especially where you could speak in the language and it would tell you, I guess, if the tonality was right and if you were yeah saying it correctly, and it would keep kind of advising you on it. Once I saw it had that feature, that to me was when I was like, whoa, this is. Really serious, and I better be ready to learn this language because it's not like a game. It's not just saying random words. You're actually kind of conversating, and yeah, having to hear yourself, which I think is yeah really important. So That seems yeah like a big, a big first step to getting people to try it.
1: Yeah, you know, it's an interesting observation because we are very um, oral first in our pedagogy. You know, we want people to um, engage with the product, and you know, speaking is actually just in general a really good way to to learn. And and then the key outcome of speaking well is not s- sounding stupid. Yeah. And so, you know, if you're trying to learn a language, you, you want to sound somewhat authentic and, you know, for Rosetta Sun I would say, you know, for anyone that really wants to learn a language will get you there. Um, but if you're just kind of trying to build, like, it's like counting your calories, kinda, mm-hmm. you know, if you kind of want to do something like that, then I would say, you know, pick a freemium product over hours and, um, Yeah, it's it's not like super intense, scary, but it's like, yeah, you you know, you you better like do your lessons before you do your group tutoring session.
0: Yeah, no, that's I mean, that's great to incentivize (laughs) people like you're paying for this. You might as well get the best out of it. Is there so one thing I was thinking when I was interacting with the free trial was, wow, this would be really cool if there was like a virtual world where you could be walking around and talking to other students who are learning are you all thinking about any technologies like that to implement? Or is there anything on your radar where you're like, we're moving in this direction or plan on trying this tech out or this digital platform out?
1: Yeah, we we've, we've played with VR in the past. I've been kind of like bearish every time someone says, let's let's go into VR, I'm like,
0: It was a hot uh, word for a while. Like, VR everything. Doesn't matter the problem. <laughs>
1: yeah, I know. It's like, and I had a lot I have a lot of friends, uh, one really good friend who actually has a, a pretty successful his definition of success, and I think it's, it is honestly successful, VR games company, but like I have a lot of other friends who went into VR that gaming or specialty verticals that just had a hell of a time is because there's not enough handsets that, that are available. What we have dabbled in in terms of immersive experience, I think what you're saying is, is there a way to, since we're immersive, use technology to make it even more immersive? And what I really want to do is enable more AR in our experience. And we have like a little feature called seek and speak where you can, it's just, it's like almost a sample app where you can use your phone. We use AR kit to kind of do like a a treasure hunt for things around uh, objects around your house and incorporate that in like your speech practice. And I always thought that was like a really cool thing for us to expand into. And if we ever get the Apple visor or some AR, you know, HoloLens or whatever, it would be cool to start interacting with your world around you, not just with translation, but also to see if you can actually interact with folks that are kind of ambient around that experience. Like I I personally, and maybe this we're going too deep here, but I always thought it'd be cool if like I could visit another country and just decide how much of the spoken language am I going to generate myself? How much am I going to have my device do it? Because I'm not going to spend the time. And then, like, how can I phone a friend? Like, how could I, like, have my tutor or, like, guide integrated into the experience where, like, I'm going to sound really authentic if I do this? Mm-hmm. Or here's an experience that I could do here. And, like, I think the goal for language learning inevitably is different based on where you are in the world. But if you're from the United States or one of, you know, maybe some of European countries like the UK, it's kind of like this is a cool way to get engaged with a culture. If you're if you're not in those countries, learning English primarily is a is a necessity. And so I think some of these AR ideas that you just mentioned would be really good. And speaking more frequently to other folks that are even not native speakers, but just trying to you know generate language is very is a very good way to um, teach. We have a product coming out called Rosetta Stone English this summer, like literally like a couple months, and it is a version of Rosetta Stone for EL kids so english learners mm-hmm. k through 6 and this product is an oral first product and this blew me away the stat if you're trying to teach a kid english primarily from lots of different countries is written communication
2: mm-hmm.
1: it's like 20% spoken and so our product is like 70 80% spoken and so it's just really interesting like what you, what could you do more that's more immersive using ar or vr i think there's I'm with you. I think there's a lot of cool things you could do. And I think you could en- enhance the travel experience quite a bit. I think you could enhance like the young learner experience quite a bit. I think there's just so many cool things you could do.
0: Yeah, completely agree. There seems like a lot of opportunities there. So what kind of disruptions do you see coming to the world of e-commerce and online learning?
1: Yeah, you know, it's a weird market. and it's It's weird because like, depending on what we're talking about in terms of overall commerce, it's like a $6 trillion education market, like $6 trillion. Consumer is probably the largest out of that. And then, you know, obviously there's higher ed, there's middle school, high school, there's elementary, and then there's, you know, adult education. And then where it's coming from is the consumer paying, is the government paying. And so take all this aside, like less than 10% is digital right now. And I think there's going to be this massive realization because of the C-19 pandemic of everything that I do has to be digital. And it's not that we're replacing teachers. It's how do we integrate digital curriculum and connectivity between the teacher and the student? How do I build a data layer that personalizes that experience? I think that can happen between, you know, language learning. It can happen in lots of different curriculum, like reading and writing and not having a digital enabled kind of curriculum, I think is gonna be like if you don't have a solution for that, if you're an education system, if you're a college, if you're whatever. And if you don't offer these types of products in the future, you're gonna go the way of the dodo bird. Mm -hmm. Like I think like higher education has a wake up call. Like for sure. You know, J. Crew, you know, I like J. Crew. They're in bankruptcy now. Hertz, I used Hertz, they're in bankruptcy now. You know, and I think there's this massive pull forward right now that's happening because you know, the product that we've been using in education hasn't changed in like 40, 50 years. It's the same product. Like I could like, if I like time work myself from 50 years ago into a, uh, most classrooms, it would look the same.
0: Yep. Yeah. I've always kind of thought that a disruption was definitely coming around higher education, but this seems to have moved everything forward by many years. And especially around K through 12, where that felt like it would be much harder to change where colleges it's like, okay, that one's changing pretty quickly with all the boot camps coming out and, you know, companies not really re- always requiring degrees, at least in this area, but K through 12 felt hard to change. And it feels like this is an, g- going to be an interesting forcing function now that, like you said, a lot of kids are home and parents are figuring out how to, you know, be a part of their education more in the online learning process. It just seems like there's going to be a lot of opportunities that come up because of this.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I also think that, you know, now I'm, I'm sounding like the, um, the tech utilitarian, but yeah, I would say that um, EdTech and I'm not from the EdTech space, but I am in, I am it now. Um, I would say that the EdTech providers, let's call this this, the, the, we're now entering the third wave, I guess, is how I think about it. And the second wave, which is typical of most other businesses that you and I have seen before, like, you know, um, e-commerce or sales ops tools, you know, now you can, you can talk about those and go, remember Omniture when it was badass? You know, like, you know, yes, it's now the part of Adobe Cloud, Matt. When you talk about these generational shifts and how we think about things, I think a lot of the ed tech players, people who are selling software into schools or directly to, to parents or kids or whomever, you know, they've definitely oversold oversold the efficacy of some of those products. Mm -hmm. And when I talk about a digital transformation, I'm not talking about the ability to do things self-serve and have the teacher look at some flat experience. Like right now, and this is not against teachers, um, teachers, they're like little mini MacGyvers to me. I mean, they're like doing amazing things, stringing together curriculum on the fly.
0: Yeah. Both my sister and my mom are teachers and I do not know how they're doing it and how they had to pivot so quickly to being in the classroom. And my sister's actually a uh, ESOL English as a second language teacher.
2: Yeah. Oh, I didn't know. Okay. Yep.
0: So I have a twin sister and she always tells me about, you know, the difficulties that she's experiencing right now, trying to bring her students online and develop curriculums online. And, you know, a lot of them don't have internet access. And uh, it's just very interesting seeing how they kind of develop workarounds to make it work for their students.
1: Yeah. And my criticism of education isn't, isn't the teacher clearly. It's, it's a lot of, it's kind of the the cost basis mm-hmm. and the, the bureaucracy. And, you know, when I talk about ed tech, it's like, I think it comes down to, and this is not a Matt Hewlett Rosetta Stone specific thing is educating a group of young individuals or even old individuals who doesn't matter the same way at the same time, make zero sense. And so you know, building in the ability for the student to do some things themselves, having a data layer so that the teacher understands the, the areas in which that student is struggling, and so that the, the instruction becomes very personalized um, is generally what I'm talking about. And it's, you know, right now, I think we have like a billion and a half young kids around the world that, you know, don't have access to computers. And if they do have access to computers, they're scanning in their math homework and sending it to a teacher. Well, who knows if I struggle for five minutes on, you know, this problem versus, you know, long division versus multiplication. The Teacher doesn't know. And so, like, I think the, you know, the ed tech software that I'm more in favor of what I'm speaking about is, you know, how do you build curriculum-based, efficacy-based um, software, not unlike what your mom and your sister think about, because they they have degrees and know how to actually educate someone. Mm-hmm. They're not software and if they're, if they're wanting to, you know, provide very explicit instruction, my guess is they're really swamped. They've got other things they need to do. They're probably like paying for materials out of their, their, their pocket. Yep. You know, and so, you know, think about all these stresses and we're asking them to, you know, provide excellent um, education, just it's too much. And so I really feel like this third wave of technology, and I think it's going to happen is, um, is going to integrate this. Uh, We call it AI and HI. Like how do you integrate the best of what software can do and integrate that into the lesson planning of the teacher versus let's try to create AI for the sake of AI and disintermediate teachers, which I think is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what I'm talking about because I I see a lot of um, um, tech companies playing the game of ed tech versus education companies that that are actually trying to be technology companies. I think the, the latter will be the software and the providers uh, that will, will end up actually being the most successful and the most adopted. But obviously I'm passionate about this because, you know, I, I see this with our Lexia software, and we've got like 16-plus academic studies that show that the software works. And I'm like, how is this possible that two-thirds of kids still today, um, by the time they're in third grade, are reading below their grade level that continues through eighth grade? Two-thirds wow. are reading below grade level. How is this possible? Yeah. Yeah, I'm not here to tout my own software. I'm just like, why is this possible? Well, it turns out we don't train teachers to teach kids how to read. There's a there's a, a an approach to it and we don't do real-time assessment. So it's kids struggling, the teachers swamp, they don't know what's going on. Um there's all anyways, I, I could I could talk about this for hours, but I, I do think there's this world where, you know, at at some point the six trillion dollar business of educating all these kids and adults and young adults will be digitized. And I think that will be an interesting space. EdTech is that one space where most VCs wouldn't want to touch. Ugh.
0: Yeah, I know. You know the- it's, it's a hard, <laughs> I mean, healthcare and education. Oh, no thanks. That's a, that's a hard space. So yeah, I completely agree. I know we're running into time and I want to make sure we can jump into the lightning round. Uh, is there any okay. other high level thoughts that you want to share before we jump into that?
1: No, I I think I hit the verbose uh, button when I answered that question, but I I didn't realize you have some familiar background on education, which got me going. So
0: (laughs) yeah, we need a whole uh, other podcast where we can just talk education stuff and I can have my family be the call-ins and they can uh, give us a little advice and ideas. All right. So the lightning round brought to you by our friends at Salesforce Commerce Cloud is where I ask a few questions and you have one minute or less, Matt, to answer. Are you? Ready. I'm ready. All right. What's up next on your reading list?
1: Words that matter. I don't know the author.
0: Cool. What's up next on your Netflix queue?
1: Oh, it's, it's embarrassing. Do I have to say yes, it? Yes, you do. <laughs> Too hot to handle. <laughs>
0: oh, my gosh. I can't believe you're watching that. I'm judging a little bit, but I've also seen a few episodes. <laughs> um, so if you were to choose a company right now to turn around, not Rosetta Stone, some Brand new company, not a brand new one, but maybe one that's in the industry right now where you're like, I could jump in and help. What company would you choose? WeWork. Ooh, that'd be an interesting one to try and turn around. All right, next one. Uh, what app are you using on your phone right now that's most helpful?
1: You know, for po- I, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I love Overcast. Mm-hmm. I don't know if anyone ever mentions that. I just love it because I listen to things in 2X.
0: Yep, yeah, no, agree. I I like that app as well. What language are you or your family working on right now to learn?
1: Well, it's funny. I, I'm kind of barely competent in Spanish. My 16 year old is actually, I would say, pretty intermediate level Spanish, and my 10 year old is oddly learning Japanese.
0: Oh, that's great! All right, and the last, little bit more difficult question: What's up next for e commerce professionals?
1: I think it's. I think to me, it's. Um, a lot of the same topics in e-commerce have been discussed for so many years. And I think the the interesting one is how do we actually make social commerce really good? And I think I, I spent a lot of time just, I'm not serious with it, but playing with like TikTok and Twitch. Mm-hmm. And I think there's some elements to the social selling piece that I think are super interesting that no one's really figured out. And I buy actually a lot of products off Instagram and it's still too much friction and it's, it's not quite working right for me. So I, I think there's some, like how do you integrate e-com in a TikTok in a way that that's, that's native to that audience? And I think there's some things there.
0: Oh, that's a good answer. Well, Matt, this has been, yeah, such a fun interview. Uh, where can people find out more about you and Rosetta Stone?
1: Uh, Rosettastone.com for the company. And I'm Matt underscore Hewlett on Twitter. And uh, it was a pleasure to talk to you today.
0: All right. Thanks so much. Thank you. Up Next in Commerce is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud and created by the team at mission.org.
2: Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts.